Welcome to Stanford Innovation Lab. I'm Tina Seelig, Professor of the Practice in the Department of Management Science and Engineering at Stanford University. This podcast is designed to give you a taste of the topics we explore in our classes on innovation and entrepreneurship. Today's guest is Margaret Neal, also known as Maggie, who's a world expert on negotiation. She's a distinguished professor at Stanford Graduate School of Business, where she focuses on leadership, strategy, and building effective teams. She's also the author of several best-selling books on negotiation, including her most recent book, Getting More of What You Want. I'm sure you'll enjoy hearing from Professor Neal and her thoughts on collaborative problem-solving. Welcome, Maggie. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, Tina, thanks for having me. I have to tell you, uh, you probably don't even know you changed my life. Uh, <laughs> right after I came to Stanford many years ago, I had the opportunity to sit in, in on one of your classes on negotiation, and it totally rewound my brain. I never realized, uh, how, A, how important this was, but also the tools that we have at our disposal. So uh, I hope that you'll be willing to share some of your insights with us today. Absolutely. And thanks for sharing that with me. That was great. Yeah, well... Um, um, why is it important for everybody to know how to negotiate, or is this just for people who are in business or you know doing deals, selling cars? No, it's a critical skill for everybody because negotiations is influence, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to influence somebody to move in a direction that we don't have control over. We don't have command and control, and so whether it's you know I'm trying to negotiate the purchase price of a car, we often think of that as negotiation, but it's also uh, how am I going to influence my team to move in a direction that I think is right for the team? So it sounds like we're negotiating every single day. Multiple times a day. Well, I guess especially, you know, when you're a kid, you're negotiating with your parents from the time you're, you're a kid, right? Well, oftentimes what's interesting is that uh, you have to be taught how to negotiate because oftentimes what kids do is it's an ultimatum, right? You know, they have the temper tantrum or they say, if, you know, if I don't get this way, you know, I'm going to hold my breath. You know, this is kind of not a very effective form of negotiation. As adults know, we can't just go into our, our boss's office and say, if you don't give me a raise, I'm going to hold my breath. <laughs> well, that's obviously one mistake. What are other mistakes that people make when they're trying to negotiate or, or get their way or influence others uh, that we should be aware? Of. You know, the biggest mistake that people make is they focus on what it is they want. I want a raise. I want this to happen. And because in negotiation, there's no command and control, you've got to understand why it might be in your counterpart's interest to say yes to you. And if you can't answer that question, why would you say yes to me? You're not ready to negotiate. So, what is the mindset that one should have when you walk into a negotiation? Well, let me first start off with the mindset that most people have, and that they have that view that negotiation is a battle. And the battle is characterized by, I'm going to try to get stuff from you that you don't want me to have, and I'm going to try to keep you from getting my stuff. And if that's how you view negotiation, as soon as you get ready for a negotiation, you start armoring up. And... You then, because of that mindset, you create a filter by which you evaluate your counterpart's behavior. And so even if they're not ready for a battle, their ambiguous behavior, you're going to interpret from that battle mentality in your head. It's going to be the most adversarial interaction and most adversarial interpretation of their behavior. So even if there weren't a fight You've created the situation that there is a fight. Because you have the mindset that this is you adversarial. Have the mm-hmm. So should we always have the goal of creating a win-win situation? 
you moved way too far, way too fast. So let's step back a little bit. So while the battle mentality, that is this, that this interaction is zero sum and your loss is my gain and my gain, my loss is your gain, is not the right mindset. But the notion of a win-win mindset, you know, sort of like, let's all get together. We're going to feel really good. You know, the kumbaya kind of notion with rainbows and unicorns isn't it either. What I'm going to suggest to you is that actually the most effective way to think about negotiation is as collaborative problem solving. But before you go down that win-win path, let me define what I mean by collaborative problem solving. The first thing is I'm looking for a solution that makes me better off. Better off than my alternatives, better off than my status quo, better off than had I not negotiated. Now, your listeners might be thinking, well, that's a pretty low bar. Why would I negotiate to be worse off? And yet, if they are truthful to themselves, they will realize that they have on numerous occasions, when they said yes, they knew when they were saying yes, the deal made them worse off and they said yes anyway. How fascinating. So the first thing you want to do is, is, is there a solution that makes me better off than where I am now? But secondly, because there is no command and control in negotiation, I have to think about a solution that at least keeps my counterpart whole or makes them better off. Now, I I call this collaborative problem solving, but people get the wrong idea. They think it's, I'm solving my problem. No, what I'm trying to do is solve your problem, my counterpart. So what I'm going to try to do is find a solution to a problem that you have that makes me better off. And that's the twist, because a lot of times people are very concerned about negotiating. They're concerned they might be perceived as greedy or demanding or not nice, um, especially women. And it turns out that it's really hard for somebody to think you're greedy or demanding or not nice when you're helping them solve a problem of theirs. So this is really interesting. I I teach classes on creative problem solving, and I I love the fact that you view this as problem solving. Mm -hmm. Is there an important aspect of creativity in a negotiation? Absolutely. Creativity is what leads to value creation, that is enlarging the pie. But the challenge that we face in negotiation, and this is the challenge that makes negotiations actually pretty tough, is how much value do I create before I begin to destroy my ability to claim that value, right? So we could do something that's often called the, um, the full disclosure strategy. I'll tell you everything, you tell me everything, and we'll just, you know, divide up the pie. And what happens is, is when you do that, um, there's some, some downsides you have to be aware of before you think about implementing that strategy. The first one is, is that what if you share everything and your counterpart doesn't, right? Then you're in a really bad position, right? Because they know everything, you know nothing, and the outcome is going to be extremely one-sided. So this is really interesting. I, I know I, I run workshops on, on negotiation inspired by some of the things that you've done. And I always find that if people were to show their hand, you're going to end up making a bigger pie, right? Because if you really do understand the other person's point of view and what their interests are. So how do you prepare for negotiations so that you understand enough about the other person's interests so that you can offer some alternatives that are going to solve their problem? Well, I think part of the, the, that, that, that preparation is that it is actually a lot more difficult than most people think about. Too many folks think about negotiation as sort of like improvisational theater. They kind of walk in and they'll just kind of go with whatever happens. And it, it really is a, a, a very clear skill to learn how to, how to 
prepare for a negotiation. And, and what we're better at is figuring out what we want. But we're really not good at that either because people are oftentimes are not very clear about what their bottom line is, what their alternatives are, sort of what are the issues under negotiation. But also what's, what I think is really critical and one of the things we don't do very well is really take time to understand our counterpart, what their preferences are, their interests. Why are they at the table? What brings them to this interaction? What would be a good deal for them? And those are the kind of questions that we need to answer uh, in order to be able to craft the solution that we're proposing to them in terms of a solution that solves a problem there. So we have to understand them. So you brought up two things. One is, of course, changing the frame, like looking at the situation from the other person's point of view. But you also talked about each individual understanding uh, their own preferences. Yes. And one of the terms that often gets used in negotiation is BATNA, which is your best alternative to a negotiating mm-hmm. agreement, which essentially is your walkaway price. Mm-hmm. You know, what is your alternative uh, to this agreement? Do you like that concept? No, actually... I don't like the word. So the concept is really important. So I, in many respects, I'll talk to you about what is your alternative. So what happens to you if no agreement were reached? The reason that I don't like the term BATNA is because it stands for, as you said, best alternative. And it gives people, a, I think, a, a, the wrong sense that it's an okay thing. So what most people do empirically in a negotiation is they look at their alternative their BATNA, as it were, and decide, well, that's, if I just get above that, I'm doing well. As a result, what happens is they get anchored to the lowest possible outcome. So rather than thinking about it as a, as a BATNA, what I want you to think about, the concept that I use, is a safety net. And so the analogies that I make is think about yourself as a trapeze artist, and you're giving a performance right before a large audience. If you end up in the safety net, it is not a success. It is not an acceptable performance. You want to do better than that. But if you end up in the safety net, you're really glad it's there. So it's not a standard by which you judge acceptability, but it's what saves you from the fall. Well, sometimes, though, your BATNA is a really good opportunity. I mean, if I get a job offer from Google and then I'm going to go interview at Facebook, um, I now have the Google offer in my pocket, and it is my best alternative to negotiate agreement with the, the new company. So is a BATNA always just a safety net? It might actually be, hey, listen, maybe I just won't leave my job. Well, but that – so I think we're, we're – I don't think we're at um, – not in sync with each other. I think part of what I'm saying to you is that maybe that offer from Google doesn't really reflect your value. But if it's what anchors you, even when you go in the conversation with Facebook, you're going to say, well, you know, this is it. And it might be, we do this all the time in class. I will randomly assign people to, with an alternative. And what will happen is when we get the results, their results are going to be highly correlated with their alternative even though that alternative has no relationship to the quality of their skill as a negotiator. So doesn't this also happen within a negotiation, right? If you throw out the first number, you've now anchored it. So doesn't that anchoring happen at all different anchoring times? Anchoring happens all the time in a negotiation. And the unfortunate, I guess, or fortunate, you can sort of figure out for yourself, implication of that is, is that you're always going to have anchors in a negotiation. The question is, which anchors do you pay attention to? So an alternative is your safety net. Your reservation price is your bottom line, right? But if that's where your mind is, that's all you think about, you will anchor yourself to the worst possible deals. So you need to think about a third parameter, and that is your aspiration. 
what is an optimistic assessment of what you could achieve. I love that. That's a a really interesting way of looking at it. Now, do men and women negotiate differently and, and should they? Well, what's really interesting is I suspect that most people think the answer to that is yes. And empirically, the answer to that is no. They don't negotiate differently. There is a big difference between men and women, but it's not in how they negotiate. It is that they negotiate. So women are much less likely to initiate a negotiation than is an equivalent man. And part of the reason for that is, is that the backlash against women is much more serious. For example, let's say that I'm going to ask you for a raise. Uh, And I am a man and I say, I say, I give you my justification. Now I take that same language, that same justification, and now I'm a woman asking for that same raise. Male supervisors will punish the woman for being greedy, demanding, and not nice in a way that they don't punish my male colleague. The interesting and weird thing is, is that if I'm actually asking you for a raise, a woman, you're going to punish both of us. Really? Very, very interesting. Yes. So women, should women negotiate differently? Uh, they, they, there is a way in which women can be very effective in their negotiations. Dare I say it? Collaborative problem solving. How can you think I'm greedy or demanding or not nice when I am solving your problem? So the research is very specific. It says that in order for women to be effective, we must pair our ask with a communal concern for the other. What is that? Well, in my language, it's the collaborative problem-solving perspective. How can I solve a problem of yours? So I get an offer from Stanford University to come to work for, for the university. I characterize my ask in terms, my ask for my compensation package, the broad package, in terms of the resources that I need in order to do good for the university. I see. I see. Now, a lot of it, it seems that there's some aspects of power, right? That men and women have different types of power in different situations. I mean, do you actually negotiate differently if you are in a different power dynamic with the person you're negotiating with? Yes, but that isn't by gender. Okay. So it turns out that power, in fact, but this may be interesting. It's certainly interesting to me. Let's see if it's interesting to your readers and your listeners. Um, It turns out that in the 1960s, there was a whole series of studies done in negotiation, and we found this huge difference between male negotiators and female negotiators, between uh, white negotiators and minority negotiators. And and the general assumption was men negotiate differently than women, and majority negotiate differently than minority folks. Okay? And we believe that. In the 1980s, they replicated those res- that, re- the, that research project, and they could find no difference because this is the problem with research is sometimes there's what we call an unmeasured third variable. What we thought was race or gender turned out to be power. Mm-hmm. So women in the 60s were in low-power positions typically. They negotiated not like women. They negotiated like low-power people. Mm-hmm. And the same for minority versus majority candidates, right? So what happened is, is that we got confused. And now we think women negotiate differently. Well, actually, if you, have, if you equate power, women, powerful women negotiate like powerful men. And low-power women negotiate like low-power men. Because it's the power, not the gender or the race. I wonder, though, if women perceive themselves of having less power, and that even though they might be in an equivalent position, they don't perceive themselves as having the power that allows them to negotiate the way a man in an equivalent position would. So I think part of, there's a couple of things that are that kind of 
play into that. One is confidence. One is um, uh, women have lower expectations. In general, women have lower expectations about what they could achieve. And then women also have this backlash that they know could come, and they've experienced it. Negotiations can also be very emotional, right? Especially if you're asking for something that really means a lot to you. Should you avoid emotions? Uh, should you try to just be very analytical and not be emotional? And just the facts. What happens if you What happens if you get emotional during a negotiation? Well, there are a couple of things about emotion. Number one is that uh, if we try to suppress emotions, uh, that has a lot of of consequences for our behavior. So you have to think about the say that that for example, in this negotiation, I'm getting really angry or really emotional, and, and so what I'm trying to do is suppress the expression of that emotion. I'm trying not to cry or I'm trying not to yell. I'm trying to be controlled. And, and my, what happens is my entire cognitive capacity is being focused on don't cry, don't yell, don't, you know, that don't thing, which means I can't process what's going on. And even if I actually am successful in not expressing those emotions, what you're going to experience is that, that I'm off, that I'm wrong, that there's something, that you're going to be unhappy with the interaction. Even though you don't even see the emotion, but what you see is I'm not, I'm not in sync with you anymore. And so suppressing emotions is a hard and ineffective strategy. What you really should be thinking about, because I think emotions are important, and I'll talk a minute about, about how we can use them strategically, but, but what happens is if you get emotional in negotiation, my suggestion is take a break. And the reason you want to take a break is you want to assess why is it that you are getting emotional and try to understand the interaction, the behavior of your counterpart, why they're pushing your buttons or that sort of thing, to reappraise and understand rather than try to suppress. Because emotions can give us some real insights into what we care about, which leads me to the notion of strategic emotions, which is, I think, a very interesting um, observation that most people, whenever you express an emotion believe it's real. And oftentimes, people express emotion strategically. I'm not really angry, but I'm going to act that way, right? And then you're going to respond because you actually think, you know, emotions are the windows to the soul, right? I mean, so you think it actually is real. And I can use that strategically. Oh, how interesting. So, uh, you know, there's sort of different flip sides, right, of, of emotions. One is be very, very confident. The other is being very vulnerable. Um, do you recommend that people cultivate different emotional states when they walk into oh, a negotiation? Absolutely. I think you need to be fluent in your emotionality because sometimes being vulnerable is a very useful strategy. Uh, and sometimes being very authoritarian and very sort of dominant is a very useful strategy. Does that depend on who you're negotiating with? Absolutely. And so can you give an example? So uh, we've done a series of studies that looked at how um, dominance versus deference affects in negotiation. So it's not particularly an emotion, but it's really sort of thinking about how do you respond to someone in, in this sort of dance that we do in negotiation. So if I have a counterpart who's coming in who's very dominant and sort of is taking over the negotiation, I have two choices. I can, I can respond dominance with dominance, right? I can, so I, can, I can get all puffy and big and sort of say, okay, I'm not going to let you make a move without my making a counter move that's even worse, right? So I could do that strategy, which is dominance, respond with dominance. Alternatively, I can see that behavior and I can respond with deference, and the question is, what, what is it in my interest to do? Well, it turns out that um, our research suggests that if 
we have a situation where I have a counterpart who's, ex- who's dominant. If I behave differently, I actually do better than I do if I try to behave dominantly. Or if I'm in a situation where there's a deferent opponent and I also behave deferentially as well. I get more. And I don't get as much as my dominant counterpart does. They get more, but the pie gets bigger and I get a bigger portion of it. And the pie is bigger. We've created more value than if we have two dominants battling it out. So how do you teach these skills? I know you've been teaching for many years at the business school and all those fortunate students who have taken your classes, you know, what have they, what kind of experiences do you create for them to teach these, these tools? Part of what I do is I give them the opportunity, which we never have in a negotiation of understanding really how well did you do? Because out in the world, you never really know how well you did. You might have an idea, but it turns out, by the way, from our research, we're really bad. When you try to get people's subjective assessment of how well they did compared to their objective assessment, there's very little correlation. So, how interesting. Yes, I've done exercises with my students, and people walk away thinking it was a fair deal, and you look at them, the points that they have, and the differential's like, oh, my gosh, I have no idea. But, of course, but that's a really good point because let's say you walked away and you were happy and you didn't even know, or your opponent, the person on the other side of the table is happy, and they didn't realize they had really left a lot on the table. Is that a terrible thing? Well, it depends on what you're trying to achieve. If your goal in the negotiation is happiness, then maybe you're fine. But if your goal is value creation and then getting a bigger share of the value that you create, then yeah, that is a bad thing. So what you're doing is in these exercises with your students is you're giving a transparency to the process so they actually can sort of look behind the curtain and see what actually ended up happening. And part of what I want them to understand is, is that they can behave in ways where they are able to claim more of the value while simultaneously making their counterparts feel good about the interaction. Fabulous. So I know you wrote a new book recently, uh, How to Get More of What You Want. And why did you write this new book? Well, the last book of negotiation I wrote was, was published in 1992. And I figured that every couple of decades you should write a new one. But the real reason is um, that because my, my prior books on negotiation were really written with people who were from my same discipline. And over the years, uh, it became more clear to me that I was really going to be able to do a lot better in terms of my uh, understanding of the negotiation dynamics and my ability to train and educate others in how to negotiate if I actually had a broader, a more diverse co-author and in this case, I um, collaborated now, I, have, I am collaborating now with a, an economist because it seems to me that when we think about negotiation, we need to understand both the economics as well as the psychology. Very interesting. Are there new lessons that pop out when you end up having that collaboration? There are because what the economists tell us, the economic model tells us, is what, the, what we should be aspiring to in terms of being able to achieve value creation and, and, and allocating that, that thing without being, without being overly confused by emotion and sort of greed and envy and all those other sorts of things. So it's a, it sets a nice standard. And then we understand that while that's sort of the prescriptive, the descriptive is, here's what people do, and where's the discrepancy between what we do and what we should be? So my last question is, what if someone wants to practice this every day? I mean, we all know that we get, we're, we're negotiating all the time. So uh, how could I really take the insights that you've shared and start practicing them on a day-to-day basis? 
Well, the first thing I would suggest is, is that you actually probably are doing it. The question is how mindful are you about that? So in your next team meeting, think about how to influence your counterparts in a direction that you think it's important for the team to go. And begin to sort of plan in advance of the meeting how you might do that. So what are the interests and the motivations and the preferences of your counterparts and what might move them in a particular direction? And how can that direction, is that a direction that's good for you? And if it is, then work on the strategies that you're going to use in advance of that interaction. That's one way. But also you can go and have a little fun. You can go out to a local store and attempt to negotiate the purchase price of your next pair of shoes and see what happens. Because it's a pretty safe environment. Because even if they say no and you really want the shoes, they'll probably still take your money. (laughs) I'm sure they will. Well, this has been incredibly informative. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Sure, Tina. Thank you for having me. This podcast is brought to you by Stanford eCorner and the Stanford Technology Ventures Program, the Entrepreneurship Center at Stanford School of Engineering. Stanford Innovation Lab is produced and edited by Eli Shell. Our digital solutions manager is Sarah Kahn, with software development by Davor Senkovic. Our designer is Daniel Stusi, and communications and marketing are led by Mike Pena and Monica Yort. You can find additional podcasts, videos, and articles at ecorner.stanford.edu. And we'd love to hear your thoughts on both this podcast and our ETL series. So please follow us on Twitter and eCorner. And if you're a fan of the series, please leave a review on iTunes. Finally, remember, entrepreneurs do much more than imaginable with much less than seems possible.